Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show, Ireland's first live gig since lockdown. And it was a perfect evening for it. So James Vincent McMorrow has just wrapped up a pilot test concert at Dublin's Ivy Gardens in front of 500 people in the audience. Virgin Media News reporter Nicole Gurnan will be with us in just a moment and we'll hear from some of the lucky few in attendance. Is this the start of normality for live events? And joining us live in studio on our first panel, Minister of State for Skills and Further Education Niall Collins and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy. Joe Biden meets Boris Johnson. We'll have the very latest from the two leaders' first face-to-face meeting as the UK Prime Minister insists there's absolutely common ground over Northern Ireland. And later in the programme, can we trust our politicians as now the coalition parties and Sinn Féin scramble to defend sending fake pollsters to people's doors and pharmacies to start vaccinating from next week. What will it mean when it comes to getting your jab? Get in touch on Twitter with the hashtag Tonight, VMTV. So we're joined first from the Ivy Gardens in Dublin by Nicole Gurnan, reporter with Virgin Media News. So Nicole, things have just wrapped up down there. What was the atmosphere like this evening? Well, Matt, it has to be said, the atmosphere was absolutely electric. It was just wonderful to see so many people so happy. And of course, the sun really helping things along and helping people's mood this evening. And certainly there was no problems for people either entering or leaving the gig. It all ran very smoothly and security were very well managed. Now, uh, Circa Richardson took to the stage at about seven o'clock. She played for about half an hour. And then James Vince McMorrow started his set at about eight o'clock and played until about 20 past nine. And it really was a landmark event after 15 months with no live music so plenty of fans here the 500 fans that were here they've obviously been starved of live entertainment for those 15 months but also thousands of people in the entertainment industry they've been out of work as well so they're really hoping that this live gig and the other live gigs that are planned are successful so there's no more interruption to the entertainment industry. Now in order to make this gig successful there were a number of uh, safety and health and safety measures in place such as uh, social distancing while people were at the gig, people were asked to stay within their pods of up to four people that they came with. If they were moving outside their pods to either go to the bathroom or to go to food stands, they were asked to wear masks. Also, people asked to arrive at staggered times and there was no alcohol being sold in the venue. And we talked to several people on their way out of the gig and we asked them whether they enjoyed the gig, first of all, and also what they thought of the safety measures that were in place. 
Oh, it was great, yeah, it was so good to have live music back. It was really, really good, really enjoyed it. And so good to see everyone out and about and having fun again. I was here with a couple of friends and we had a great time together. So it was really, really well run and it was brilliant, to be honest. It felt really safe and it was just lovely to be back out and about with friends and really well organised. It was super, super nice. Yeah, fantastic, yeah, everyone did a great job here. It was all very social distance, everyone had a great time, so perfect, yeah. And didn't hamper your enjoyment at all? Or? Not at all, no. Happy to be here. Nicole, this was a pilot event and they've done pilot events at concerts in other countries where they did things like antigen testing or PCR testing and then followed up afterwards to see if there had been any infection transferred. Was there any antigen testing for this? No, this is really interesting, Matt. Obviously, there was not a lot of debate about this in the past number of weeks, but they decided not to go with any official pre- or post-gig testing. Instead, they're relying on those safety measures that they put in place and also relying on people to be honest and to stay at home if they had any COVID-19 symptoms. Now, as you say, this is the first of a series of pilot events uh, getting ready for increased capacity in July and August. There are a number of events taking place across June. We got word today that one of the indoor events down in Killarney, that has completely sold out so it will be interesting to see how these pilot events go and whether there's any scope to increase capacity in July and August because obviously the entertainment industry is keen to get back to normal as soon as possible and they're keen to have as many people back in venues like this and in stadiums across the country as soon as possible so it remains to be seen whether there is perhaps any scope for either PCR or antigen testing in the weeks to come in the hopes of getting people back to venues quicker than expected. Thank you very much, Nicole. Well, we're joined here now in studio by the Minister of State for Skills and Further Education, Lyle Collins, and by the People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy. I start with you. How quickly would you hope and expect that live events like this can happen on a much more regular basis? Yeah, well, look, tonight kicks it off. It's a first step, which is really positive. And I, th I think the report there outlines the enthusiasm that people have for all of this, which goes without saying. Um, they're not easy to organise. There's a lot of logistics in the background to getting to this point in time. There has to be an event management plan presented and agreed with the authorities. Um, we are still in the pandemic. The virus hasn't gone away, but yet we're, it's part of our reopening. So I think it's um, refreshing to see that we have um, a schedule of events, both live entertainment and sporting events. And that's important also to uh, reiterate that sport is included in this and the various uh, across the various sporting codes. So we have to just learn as we go. Um, the government was keen to stress that this is a first step in terms of, um, you know, figuring it out, um, testing it. Uh, uh, brainstorming afterwards to see uh, how the events went and um, hopefully planning, as you, as you say, to try and expand as we go along. And that's against the, back, the backdrop of the, the vaccination programme continuing and more and more people being vaccinated. Well, I will we come back to you in a moment about sports events, but also about yep. the use of antigen testing. But Paul Murphy, how important is tonight? Because there's an awful lot of people, tens of thousands of people possibly, who have been out of work for about 15 months with only the PUP for income because live music and performance and the arts seems to have suffered worse than anything else. Yeah, I mean, they, they are the sector, um, together with people like taxi drivers who are probably were affected first and are going to be affected right until the end. And, you know, the truth is that live entertainment isn't going to come back in the way that it was for quite a period of, of time. Why not? Just, Would you not be confident as the vaccination programme rolls out that we can get back to normal pretty quickly? Um, I think it's going to take many, many months. I think even the government's estimates would be, be that, that these kind of test events and you, 
you get bigger. Um, so, for example, for, for the entertainment industry looking at this, I'm sure they're very happy to see it. But on the other hand, they look at the cuts to the PUP, which many of them will still be on come September, and thinking, well, that's not a government that's trying to assist uh, me. The, the other point I would make, I mean, obviously, look, it's, you know what I mean? Everyone who's watching will wish, oh, I wish I was in that crowd there. I, I do think it's bizarre that um, we didn't do antigen testing before and after. I mean, that seems to be standard practice. These are test events to see if these things work or if they become super spreader events. I think the fact that they're held outside means that they're much more likely to be safe. But how exactly we're meant to be testing that when we're not testing people before and afterwards, as is happening in Britain, in Belgium, in Germany, that's the standard practice. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, look, I, I think it's a fair point and a fair question. And the government um, is conscious of that. Public health are split on antigen testing, as you know. Um, but even if public health is split, isn't it for the government to make decisions? We keep been told, and yeah. for advisors. Yeah. So if the government Absolutely. has to take into consideration how to get events going again, surely it should have to get more information on antigen testing, used it at an event like tonight. Yeah, and I, and I think as we roll, roll out through the next number of weeks and as other events are planned, I think we will see antigen testing being rolled in as part of that. Today, as I said, is the first steps in terms of getting, getting the gigs, getting the sporting uh, fixtures up and running and learning from them. Uh, you know, there, there are other parts, not just the antigen testing in terms of the organisation. And uh, as your report tonight has showed, um, you had proper separation, you had pods and you had social distancing and all of that. Um, and I think antigen testing will play a big role as we move later into the summer and into autumn, particularly um, under my own brief, when we look at return to on-campus, in-person, uh, third-level education. But, but even before that, you've mentioned sports. Things like the All-Ireland Finals in yeah. August, you'll be under pressure as a Limerick man if Limerick get to the hurling final again. Yeah. I mean, is 5,000 people in Croke Park going to be enough? Yeah, no. Um, but, uh, yeah, look... We, we, we Look, this is evolving week on week, day by day, week by week. We're making steps. So it's baby steps every day in terms of incrementally getting to the space that we want to be. And my own view is that antigen testing has a, has a part to play. The Ferguson report has identified that. Uh, as I said, some of the medics are, are split on it. But I think as we reopen and as we broaden out our level of activities and the concentration of people that we'll allow into these, it will definitely become part of it in time. Paul, the Minister has just said about the third level institutions, the colleges returning in September, getting people back on campus. The Thonishta has spoken about getting office workers back in August. If that's to be achieved, isn't antigen testing going to be essential? Yes, um, it, it is. Um, I mean, the, the concern that those who are concerned about it have is real, which is that if you get a negative antigen test, it doesn't mean you don't have COVID. It means you're, you're likely not to be infectious at that point in time, but you may become infectious later on. So it isn't a substitute for you know, a, a strategy of eliminating the virus with obviously a big emphasis in terms of the vaccine. Um, I, I think there is a an additional reason to be concerned right now and to be cautious, um, which is the what was previously called the Indian variant, which is now the, the Delta and Kappa uh, variant, which they are now dominant in Britain. I think they're generally, there's some debate about it, but they seem to be about 50% more transmissible. And the crucial point is that if, if you get both doses of Pfizer or AstraZeneca, you're well protected. But if you only have one dose, it's only 33% effective. And effectively, there is, a, there is a race against time 
between that becoming dominant in Ireland and us getting enough people double vaccinated. Do we not need to be getting vaccinated? beyond fear, though? Do we not need to be embracing the positive? The news today, for example, that there isn't a single patient with COVID in St. James's Hospital in Dublin, that the numbers are coming down consistently, and even if they are maybe still hovering in the high 300s, at least the numbers in hospital and ICU all over the country are dropping dramatically. Absolutely. Um, we also can look at Britain, where the numbers have come down or are at a low level, but hospitalisation is beginning to tick up again on the basis of these variants. And, you know, it's all very well for us to say, oh, we just look at the positives. But if we were in a situation because of reopening too fast in a month's time or two months' time, whereby we have you know, very significant numbers going over a thousand again a day, the beginnings of hospitalizations creeping up, the impact of long COVID and all of that, well, then we'd be faced in a very difficult situation because I think people simply wouldn't accept going back to, to lockdown. People wouldn't accept that we can do this again. So we have to avoid being there. So that means being cautious in terms of indoor reopening. It, in my opinion, does mean at this point in time, we should be having mandatory hotel quarantine for Britain, where the Indian vaccine, vaccine is is, very, is dominant. Because when we did that previously, for example, we stopped the spread of the Brazilian vaccine. So you want uh, anyone coming in from variant. Britain at present by uh, air from, or by sea to go into mandatory by, hotel by quarantine? By air or sea to go into mandatory hotel quarantine, yeah. Yeah, well, the government are keeping a close watch on, on the, the Delta variant, uh, particularly in the UK. And we, we've heard from Arlene Foster this evening in relation to Northern Ireland that there's a, a high incidence of it now in Northern Ireland. So it is a concern. And look, we're all anxious to see the opening up um, uh, as much as we can and, and as freely as we can. But just take Limerick last week, for example, uh, in terms of the spike that we experienced in Limerick and uh, the fear that that instilled in people that we were going to have to endure a local lockdown. And... Uh, you know, so the point I'm making is the virus is ever present and it, it isn't going away anytime soon. So whilst we have to try and plan to reopen and manage it as best we can, we have to be cognizant that, that the back, you know, the backdrop and the context of all of this is that it's still prevalent. Well, then what about the point that Paul brought up about the PUP being cut in September for people who won't, by the sounds of it, be able to go back to work in the indoor venues, the musicians who are doing events, who do weddings, things like that? Why are they then, when they've been out of work already for 15 months plus, been told you still have to stay on the PUP, but actually it's going to be less money? Yeah, so the government has given... Um, at all stages has given certainty in terms of the, the support payments, whether it's to business or whether it's to PUP, uh, and have given um, a, a window or a view in terms of how those payments are going to be structured for the next number of weeks at the various uh, junctures right throughout all the different lockdown periods. So people have the degree of certainty in terms of uh, what payments they're going to receive over the next number of weeks. And government has always said, and it's right, that they're prepared to change and to react um, as the conditions um, change and react on the ground in relation to how, how, we're, how we're getting on. So, you know, it, it's, it's a constant work in progress uh, okay. managing, the, managing the pandemic. Stay with us because we have many other topics that we want to get through this evening. But earlier today, the US President Joe Biden and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson held their first face-to-face -face meeting on the eve of the G7 summit in Cornwall. We're joined now from Britain by the political editor and presenter with GB News, Darren McCaffrey. Uh, Boris Johnson was saying complete harmony over Northern Ireland. Is this another one of Boris's bluffs? Can we believe him? Uh, I think we probably have to accept that there is a little bit of bluffing with that, Matt, when it comes to what Boris has said. Clearly, the United States is pretty angry to a degree about the 
you know, Northern Ireland Protocol, how Britain is interacting with the European Union. And there is real concern, clearly, inside the US administration about what potentially might happen this summer, you know, given the violence that we've seen over Easter and the possibility of the parade season getting hijacked, essentially, by kind of loyalist extremists and using the protocol as an excuse for violence. So, you know what, there is clearly concern inside the administration. But at the same time, I don't think the US government's going to really take it that far. I mean, they're just making it pretty clear they want Britain to, to talk to Europe, uh, to Brussels, to try and sort these things out. But at the same time, I don't suspect they're going to get in, involved any more than that, really. But isn't it those trade deals to be struck between the US and the UK? And will the U United States trust a country which does a deal with the European Union and within a matter of months almost uh, tries to renege upon it? Well, ultimately, you know, the deal was open to interpretation. You know, there were clearly aspects that were pinned down, but there were other ones that were part of a working group that were open uh, to negotiations. We know that there were transition periods put in place. Uh, we know uh, that, for example, the EU knew that when they signed the deal, they weren't necessarily ready to implement uh, all of the protocols that were in place. Uh, so I think just to say this clear cut that Britain is reneged on is, you know, is a bit going a bit far. Also, when you look at the United States, Matt, uh, when it comes to the relationship, the special relationship, as Joe Biden called it again today, uh, with the UK, I mean, you know, Brexit is a very, very small part of it. Relations with Ireland are a very small part of it, Northern Ireland. Ultimately, you've got a military alliance. Britain's the biggest defence vendor in Europe. It is clear that Biden and his administration are really concerned about Russia and China. They know they need Britain on board. If Biden is to build this kind of coalition of democracies he talks about, Britain's going to be a big part of that. Uh, and in many regards, actually, British foreign policy is on exactly the same plane as Biden's foreign policy. When it comes to things like climate change, both Boris and Biden are on the same uh, wavelengths when it comes uh, to tackling the coronavirus crisis. They both need, know they need to supply more vaccines to the rest of the world. And they certainly know that China essentially now is a pretty big threat. So I think the transatlantic alliance is not going to be derailed uh, because of the kind of models around Brexit and, and Britain trying to work through things uh, with the European Union in relation to the protocol. Darren, you mentioned COVID there and the Delta variant, which is worrying a lot of people. Tell us about the initiative that has been agreed about using an enormous amount of vaccines that will be sent to other parts of the world to try and deal with the Delta variant. Well, so interestingly, first of all, there was much talk ahead of this summit that there might be some travel corridor between uh, the UK and the US. And the US actually did announce it was relaxed travel rules for vaccinated people this week, but the UK was not part of that. Clearly, there is concern in the US about uh, the Delta variant or the Indian variant. Uh, Matt Hancock, the UK Health Secretary today, Matt, said that 91% of new cases now in uh, Britain were because of the, the Delta variant. It is absolutely dominant here. It is more transmissible. The government suggests 40 to 50%. Neil Ferguson was suggesting it could be as high as 80%. He's the man that essentially forced Britain into lockdown with his modelling last year. Uh, but uh, there is also recognition from both the British 
and American governments that they need to do more with vaccinations. Now, why is that? Well, I think initially, to begin with, there was this massive kind of vaccine nationalism to try and protect their own populations. They knew that it wouldn't wash with voters, both Biden and Boris, that they would somehow be giving away vaccines when most of their populations were not protected. But I think given the fact that, obviously, the vaccination program's gone pretty well in the US, it's gone very well in Britain, and they know that with these variants, we're never going to be wholly safe until the rest of the world is properly vaccinated, and that they really need to step up, essentially, and supply more vaccines to the rest of the world. And that's why Biden's announced an extra 500 million Pfizer vaccines to, uh, to, to developing countries, essentially. Britain is also uh, chipping in. And in the end, they hope that over the next year or so, that will help try and dampen down surges of outbreaks in different parts of the world. Okay. And it's also essentially to try and compete against Russia and China, Matt, because they know that, you know, vaccines are pretty good diplomacy at the same time too. Thank you very much, Darren, for joining us. Briefly, Paul, given as you mentioned the Delta variant earlier, how thankful should we be to the United States for this generosity of 500 million doses that they're willing to donate to the third world? It's not enough, is the truth. Um, so the, the way the doses are being given, they've been given as part of what's called the COVAX program. The COVAX program is, is a program to only vaccinate 20% of the populations of developing countries. That's all. If you're a poor country, you only get one in five of the vaccines that you need and you have to go and com compete on the world market to buy the rest of them. So the 500 million will mean they'll get closer to getting 20% coverage in the poorest countries in the world. But that's not enough to save lives and it's not enough to stop further... Um, further mutations of the virus, which can then be vaccine resistant and so on. So the, the central thing that needs to happen that Biden previously under pressure had said he was in favour of, but we need to see that he's still in favour of it, is the suspension of the so-called TRIPS agreement, i.e. the suspension of the intellectual property rights, the big pharmaceutical companies hanging on to that, putting their interests of profit in the future ahead of the needs of the world's population, who vast majority of whom are still not vaccinated. On the other point that we just heard from Darren, the issue of the meeting between Biden mm. and Johnson. Johnson saying a breath of fresh air, complete harmony over the issue of Northern Ireland. Do you believe Johnson or are you in support of what Simon Coveney said, that Joe Biden can see through the spin and fog from London? Yeah, so, so look, I mean, over the years, whether it's Brexit or, or, or other issues, there's always crisis when, when we get to a point in time when, you know, we're, we're discussing... Um, mini standoffs like we're like we're having right now all these things they always get sorted and i think joe biden's intervention has been useful we want to have everybody on the same page the us uh, the uk the european union it's in everybody's interest that these issues get uh, hammered out I'm not sure was it Joe Biden or Michal Martin said it or was Michal Martin quoting Joe Biden today. He said common sense has to come into the room and the issues need to get sorted. That That's in everybody's interest. And if you can get uh, an SPS agreement, which is effectively uh, animal and, and foodstuffs, you, you'd eliminate 80 percent of the checks, you'd eliminate 80 percent of the problem. And I think um, Joe Biden has indicated that if we could get that bit of it over the line, it would remove any issues that he has with a, um, a US-UK trade deal. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. The panel is staying with us. And after the break, can we trust our politicians as more political parties admit to sending party members, volunteers and students to pose as pollsters at people's front doors? Is this a political storm in a teacup or is it a case of seriously deceiving and misleading the public? Mm -hmm. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back. Minister of State Niall Collins and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy are still with us. And we're joined via Skype by Professor of Politics with Dublin City University, Gary Murphy. And Gary, more political parties have now been caught up in this fake pollster controversy where political parties were sending party members, volunteers or students to people's front doors that were posing as pollsters. What's your take on this? Is this a serious issue that should be concerning to the public? I think it is, Matt. I think it's very serious. Um, and I think it's been a dark day for Irish politics over the course of the last uh, 36, 48 hours since uh, Philip Ryan broke the story in the, uh, in the Independent. I mean, for two and a half decades, the Irish state has been putting in place uh, an architecture to ensure that our politics is, uh, is clean. I mean, if you look at things like the regulation of lobbying, freedom of information, um, whistleblower legislation... Uh, a whole range of things. Um, all that's been good, I think. Uh, but what's been missed here in, in the, I think, in the commentary on the issue is that uh, when people knock on doors, either for polling or, and particularly for, for canvassing, what they're looking for is, is the trust of the of the citizen. In my view, the trust of the citizen has been abused uh, quite dramatically here uh, by political parties, um, because what's happening is people are turning up on doors uh, pretending to be something they're not. Uh, they're pretending to be. Uh, independent pollsters when they're actually party activists. And I don't think there's any getting uh, around that, uh, that, that conundrum. And I don't think it's appropriate for politicians uh, to say, as, as we saw Honor Brint say last night on your show, Matt, um, you know, that they didn't have the money. So this was the only way to do it. And there's no excuse for Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil or for the Greens, all of whom have admitted this over the course of the last, uh, of, of this day. And I think it's been a, you know, it's a, a, a rather sorry state of events, to be frank. And indeed, we don't have anyone from Fine Gael with us, but we should say it has been reported in the Irish Times tonight that they also were using fake ID cards for some non-existent market research company if people at their doors asked the pollsters who they were representing. Yeah, it, 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 it beggars belief. I, 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 there is obviously... It, it, polling is quite complicated in many ways, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of controls that um, polling companies use and one of them is about social bias the idea that you might tell the the, the pollster uh, what they, they, they want to know and, and that's why it's, it's anonymous um but that i think you know in one way is neither here nor there, 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 there there's an ethical issue uh, at stake you know and irish politics has suffered from, from ethical problems over over decades and you know 
I thought I was rather naive um, when this came out that it had been going on. I, I'm well aware that political parties had been polling constituencies and had been doing it, you know, for, for a number of, of decades. But the idea that they would, you know, present basically a fake uh, polling card, or a fake, as you say, a fake ID card, or, um, you know, a fake company, really, it's rather astonishing. I mean, politics is supposed to be clean, you know, it's supposed to be open, it's supposed to be transparent. This is what you know, many of us have been commenting on uh, for decades. It's what the political parties themselves have been telling us they've been trying to do. And now we have this, in my view, a scandal of, uh, of political parties pretending to be something uh, that they're actually not. And it, uh, it, it abuses, in my view, the trust of, uh, of, of we, we, the citizens. Paul Murphy, you're involved in politics for over 20 years, socialist politics, various parties. Are your hands clean in relation to this type of practice? My hands are clean, um, but uh, I have done polling uh, absolutely even campaigns that i've been involved in but hey, um, what's, hang on, what sort of polling now did so I, you I, did you actually represent to the people whose doors were knocked on that this has been done on your behalf or your party's behalf see if, if you go to someone's door and you ask you give them a ballot paper and you tell them you're from paul murphy's campaign or Alan collins's campaign or anyone's campaign you screw the results of the poll that's that's the truth so what our people would do, certainly, and this, I don't think People for Profit actually has done this. Obviously, I've recently joined People for Profit. They haven't. But in previous campaigns that I've been involved in, what our people would do is you, you wouldn't say who you're from because you wouldn't want to skew the result of the poll. If a person asked you, you'd say, well, you're from a political party, but that you're not going to name the party at this point because to do so would skew the poll, but that if people want, you'll tell them at the end. The information is completely anonymised. There's no issue of data Sorry, collection or GDPR. what do you mean it's completely anonymised? You don't, you don't take the name of the person, you don't take the address of the person, etc. Well, you don't call to the doors, no? You, you call to the door, but the door then is randomised. Then you have the address. You, but you, you don't have the electoral register, so you know you, the name no, of the person you, at you the don't, house. But you don't, you don't take any of that information. So the, the point, oh, this sorry, information... Why should, we, why should this, we trust any politician who tells us? Because we know that, for example, when the tallies are done in the election centres, every box has been analysed and people in the parties are trying to work out who has voted for who. So are you trying to tell us that when politicians send pollsters to the door of houses and the people in those houses tell their voting intentions, that no record is kept of that and I'm, nothing I'm, is cross-referenced against the residents I, of that particular I, I, I'm saying that 100% for any polling that I've ever been involved in, absolutely. Because if something like that was happening, then you're getting into a serious area. But I, I think to the extent to which actual polling is taking place, being done by volunteers rather than being done by companies, I think there's not an issue here. Po polling information is valuable. That's why parties do it. To get a poll conducted by a company is about 10,000 euros for a constituency poll. It's a huge amount of money. So lots of local party organisations and small parties simply can't afford that. And to get, it's literally exactly the same practice. So Gary, I think, is saying it's okay for a party to go and pay Ipsos, MRBI or whatever polling company to go and do it. Those people don't say what party they're conducting the poll for. They don't, they don't say that because that would also skew the poll. They say they're here for Ipsos, MRBI and they're employed by a company, yeah, but they apply professional it's, standards it's, it's, rather than being political so, activists but, gathering so, information. But, but the, the, so that may affect the quality of the poll data that we emerge with. It's more likely that with volunteers, you're going to come up with, you know, your margin of error is going to be larger and so on. But as long as you don't, and you hit on the crucial point, it, as long as there isn't a crossover between polling and canvassing, Whereby, let's say, if, if, if someone was to identify, I'm, I'm 
polling, but actually I know this person and we go back to canvas them later on the issue, that would be a problem. But if it is genuinely done as polling separately, so you there, there isn't that a scandal. So you're saying Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and the Greens have all admitted to as well and that what Sinn Féin it's, did is all right. As long as what they've done is simply polling, and that they didn't record that information anywhere, which I understand that's what they're all saying. If that's the case, that's what they're then, all saying. Then, then I think that's, that's not a problem. Gary Murphy, what do you make of that? Well, I, I never thought Paul Murphy would be part of the establishment and, the, and have an establishment view. I, I'm rather astonished to hear a politician of the left uh, to come across when, to when, say Gary, that... Gary, when people uh, told you they were doing internal... Let him make his point, Paul, and then Gary... Where do you think internal party polling was coming from? Gary, do you want to make your point? Well, I do want to make my point, exactly. I, I, I take Paul Murphy's point about money in politics. That, and you know, and he, he does make a good point in relation to the idea that polls are, are expensive. But in my view, there's a much more substantial issue here, and that's about ethics in public life and, and in politics. And the idea that you can turn up at someone's door and pretend to be something you're not uh, she seems to be missing from the uh, from the debate. Um, you know, uh, yes, skewing polls it, it, it can happen. Certainly, I, I talked about that uh, already. But there are ways around this, Matt. Um, certainly, you can say that you're from a political party, as, as Paul suggested. You could come back the following day, leave, leave a ballot paper over uh, overnight with, with um, whoever you're uh, you're polling. So, you know, I, I think this idea that this is okay. Uh, which is the narrative coming from the political class, uh, really needs to be challenged. Of course, now, Collins, your party is saying it finished in 2007. There was no shortage of money in Fianna Fáil during the Celtic Tiger years. You had all the money from the Galway Races tent. You could have applied to polling and things like that. Yeah, so look, the, the, the key point, and Paul has made it, is that there was no personal data collected here. And there was no, so we're told. There was no personal data stored. There was no data sets created. Uh, there's no filing cabinets with people's personal details. So why details. should we believe people who tell us that when those are the people who are using fake IDs from made-up companies yeah. to lull people and deceive them into giving information? Well, and then you tell us that the information collected, I know, sure, it was all anonymised. We didn't store that at all. Why yeah, should we yeah, believe that? Yeah, they, they were a crude exercise. Polling has evolved. Uh, I would say not every constituency poll that was carried out, uh, people were running around with fake IDs. So it has evolved um, I don't think it's, uh, I accept Gary's points in terms of ethics and in relation to all of that, but it has evolved over the years and Fianna Fáil has set out its position pretty clear on it. We haven't done it since. Has it evolved now because it's all gone online and because now manipulation of social media accounts and harvesting of information from Facebook and the rest of it is a more data-driven way of doing it without having to go door to door? Well, look, a lot of the polls are online now because of the pandemic, but... um, like I can only speak for Fianna Fáil, we have been using the outsourcing, using professional polling companies to do our constituency polling since 2007. It's an expensive exercise. It's part of the research that political parties and political activists of all all shades and colours have to do. And um, there's nothing sinister, I think, in relation to this. Uh, I, I, look, I mean, my, my constituency office, Paul's is the same, are barometers for how the public react to things. I haven't had one communication from any member of the public expressing displeasure or concern. You think in they don't care about it? Not an issue for them. Well, wh- what I'm saying to you is this. Um, I, I accept that it's, it wasn't best practice. It was back in the day. Things have changed now and we're in a far better space and in a far more regulated space. And I think that's for the better. Are we in a far better space, Gary Murphy, a more regulated place? Yeah, we certainly are, you know, and um, I, I think Niall, Niall is, is right in, uh, in that regard. Uh, but clearly people in political parties that knew that this was not good practice 
if it was put if the stop uh, was put to it. And I think there's more to it than simply, as Owner Brin said last night, that Sinn Féin now have more money uh, than they had. I mean, clearly, if Fianna Gael put a stop to it, the Greens and Fianna Fáil, someone knew that this wasn't uh, appropriate practice. And, uh, and I think that speaks volumes uh, in itself. You make a good point about the, um, the internet, Matt, and about online polling and, and on- online advertising. I think that is an area we still have to, to regulate. I mean, we'll, we'll, there'll be local elections and, and a general election over the course of the next number of years. And uh, our politics is in danger of being corrupted by, by fake news, by misrepresentation, by a whole range of things. And I think the more regulation we have of the political system, the better. I'm very hopeful that the Electoral Commission, uh, which this government has that finally set up, when many of us have been calling it for, for a couple of decades now, um, will be an important part, an important armory uh, for the state uh, to ensure that our politics is, uh, is clean and that people uh, can trust the political process. Because at the end of the day, that's, uh, that, that's my concern around this uh, to put it mildly dubious, practice in, uh, in, in polling. Paul, just to finish with you, maybe the politicians aren't being contacted by constituents about this. Maybe the people don't care. Or maybe what it is is that it just confirms the cynicism that an awful lot of people have about the way politics is conducted in this country. I think people are right to have an extreme level of cynicism about how politics is conducted in this country, right? But I think for most people, that is not about the idea that some parties have the money to pay for companies to do polling and other parties use volunteers. I don't think that's the issue for people. I think the main issue for people and the biggest, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Gary says, but the biggest issue for people is like the elect, the promises that people tell at election time with no no intention of ever keeping those promises. That's the number one issue that will come up in terms of housing, in terms of the Greens, in terms of generally issue after issue. After. That's, that's what concerns people. We leave it there for now. Our thanks to Professor Gary Murphy and Paul Murphy for being with us. Minister of State Niall Collins is staying with us. And after the break, over 1,000 pharmacies are to start rolling out vaccines from next Monday. What exactly will it mean when it comes to getting your COVID jab? Kate O'Connell, the pharmacist, joins us. And are over 60s feeling left behind waiting on their second dose of AstraZeneca. Welcome back, Minister of State Niall Collins is still with us and we're joined by pharmacist and former politician Kate O'Connell and it's in your pharmacy capacity you're with us this evening. Tell us about the vaccination programme for the pharmacies. How is that going to work out? Well, initially, um, next week, um, a thousand pharmacies are going to be getting 50 Johnson shots and the aim of that is to get to the over 50s that haven't been got to yet by the GPs or the mass vaccination centres. So there's about 100,000 people out there, over 50, that aren't vaccinated for whatever reason. Perhaps some of them are anti-vax. Perhaps some of them may have had a medical condition at the time. They may have been out of the country. They might have been suffering a loss or various reasons. Or they may just need that conversation. So one thing that I suppose pharmacists are quite good at is getting information out of people. We're very accessible. So we're hoping that those people that may have questions will come to us. I'd have a few people already that I'd know in the community that aren't vaccinated and that we'll try and penetrate that group that I suppose the HSE and the GPs have failed to get to that 100,000. In addition to that, um, 350 pharmacies across Ireland are getting Pfizer shots and they are specifically being allocated to pharmacies that are far away from mass centres, people with maybe not have any transport and where there's no GP access. So um, this is all about trying to push the figures 
up to getting to an 80% herd immunity in the population and making sure anyone that wants a vaccine isn't deprived of one. Some people haven't access to the internet. Some people lead quite chaotic lives or they may just want to wait. It's a common theme in the shop. Um, they say to me, I just want to wait to see how this goes for other people. And they may c come into the fold then over the summer, hopefully. Do you anticipate people perhaps might look to you to give them their second shot if they're waiting for it? Because there seems to be a significant body of people now, particularly the over 60s who got the AstraZeneca vaccine, who are still waiting more than eight weeks afterwards for their second shot. Mm. Will they start putting you perhaps under pressure? Go on, give us the jab. Well, there won't be scope for that. The state owns the vaccines and we'll be delivering them under contract. Um, what I would like to see, though, is I would like to see perhaps the people between 40 and 49. So the NIAC guidelines state that where there is informed consent, that people in that cohort can be given the vaccine. As of now, we've been told we can't. But I would like a situation if I was working late night in Dublin City, where if somebody from the homeless community or somebody perhaps um, in the addiction services came in to have a conversation and if I said, have you had your vaccine? What age are you? I'm 45. Do you want to have a chat? Do you want to come in? Do you want to do it? One shot, done, out the door. I think it would be a missed opportunity if pharmacies, especially those working in city centres, um, wouldn't be able to target those groups that may just be missed otherwise or fall through the stool, between two stools. Now, Collis, what about those people over the age of 60 who haven't received their second shot and are now getting very worried, particularly when they hear that the Delta variant, that they're at risk from it if they haven't had their second shot? Yeah, it, look, it's a big issue. I, I get a lot of contact um, in my constituency office from people in that age cohort who've had the AstraZeneca. And... Um, Government is waiting on NIAC to give its determination in relation to that. And um, if that changes, well, then I think you, you can see a change. What Kate has outlined there could help that uh, hugely because the um, bringing on or bringing the, the pharmacists into the into the whole campaign now is going to add another spoke to the wheel in terms of reaching people and affording uh, capacity to get to the critical mass. But sorry, on the AstraZeneca, it's not just people over the age of 60, there are also younger people who, before the rules changed yes. who received it because Correct. they were yeah. concerned to be high-risk categories. Yes. They're now finding themselves waiting for their second shot and finding other people significantly younger than them have received both their shots of a different vaccine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I'm aware of that and I recognise that also. And I... The AstraZeneca, the 12 weeks has been reduced to, to eight weeks. Which is and not much good, though, if people still aren't being called for their second shot. Yeah, but look, it's not perfect. The whole system isn't perfect, but it is, it is rolling out and it is, I think, largely a success. And we are getting through the numbers. The numbers are showing it day by day. So, and the situation, then we have the evolving situation, like the new, the Delta variant. And then you have the supply challenges. But I, I think all in all, it's it's a good exercise to date. And the fact that the pharmacies are now on board is really, really positive because, uh, as Kate has pointed out, they'll get their 50 Janssen's, which is the one shot, and then 350 of them will be Pfizer, will be able to administer the Pfizer. And, you know, the mass vaccination centres aren't going to be here forever. So ultimately, COVID will be around for a long time and vaccination will be around for a long time. The mass vac centres will disappear and you'll have your GPs and your, your pharmacies 
uh, to the main in the front line in terms of vaccinating people as we roll out in the, in the years ahead. Of course, we're still waiting for the 30 to 39 year olds to be told when they're going to get their vaccinations. Apparently the portals will open sometime late next week. Could there be a role for the pharmacies, do you think, Kate, in that? It could be. And I believe there's a huge role for pharmacies and um, when it comes to younger population, because especially in where I'm working, many young people, you know, sort of go to City West, they'd have to get a taxi or a bus where and if they're working, um, be it from home or elsewhere, just to get the convenience to go and do something. And if you're in a situation where you're very low risk of becoming sick from something, well, then to um, put a barrier in the way of those people, be it transport or otherwise, it's, it's proven that convenience is a key factor in getting to herd immunity. So really, you know, giving vaccines to the likes of me or that was dying for a vaccine, I'm, I'm an easy target. Getting to 50, 60% is going to be fine. But we have to get to 80% to protect the wider population. And just to go back to your point about the Johnson's vaccine or the Janssen vaccine or the Johnson & Johnson and some people getting it before the people on the Astra. I mean, that's very clear in the healthcare setting. There are healthcare workers who are just getting this week and scheduled for the coming weeks their second shot of Astra. And obviously, you know, if someone comes in and they say, well, oh, I've had my Johnson and I'm done. But that's just the way it is. It's not perfect. There's going to be different um, solutions. And I don't think any healthcare worker is going to begrudge a vaccine to a 50-year-old um, that may just gain immunity two weeks ahead of them. It's not, I don't think it's an, a major issue. But yet there is a concession by the Taoiseach today. We're not going to hit our 80% target by the end of this month. It's going to be 70%. Yeah, 70, the, the new target is 70% vac, vac, fully vaccinated by the end of July. Look, I mean, government has, has said it repeatedly ad nauseum the whole way through. The only constraint has been the supply. And we've had various ups and downs in relation to supply. And Janssen was a huge um, uh, issue in relation to Janssen. And that's why the, the whole remodeling exercise had to be done in terms of how we d distribute the vaccines around the place. But there's great credit to the HSE. It's one of the major success stories of the HSE, how this has been rolled out. And I think we just have to acknowledge that at every opportunity we get. So it's rolling on. And the fact, as Kate has alluded to, the convenience, the inconvenience of having to go to a mass vaccination centre outside of Dublin and outside of the cities is one of the, the biggest issues that I get. I, I'm a rural TD, I represent rural county Limerick and people having to travel that distance. So having your GPs and your community pharmacists vaccinating is the way forward. We spoke earlier in the programme, Kate, about antigen testing and the potential for having used it perhaps tonight at the James Vincent McMorrow concert and it wasn't done. What do you think about the reluctance that seems to be on the part of the health authorities to authorise extensive use of antigen testing? Well, I would share um, Dr Holland's reluctance um, Why? when it comes to antigen testing. The, the specificity of them has sensitive the hours of concern. You don't want to attach um, a false sense of security or confidence to a negative test result from an antigen test because there's, so, there's, there's such scope for error when it comes to the actual test itself. The accuracy level is low. When you come to operator error in terms of taking the swab and, 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 and doing the, the mix and then doing the test in 15 minutes, you could really end up with more likely of, of an incorrect result than a, than, a, than a correct result. But a lot of the experts um, and the product suppliers would debate that and dispute that? Well, compared to PCR testing, it is not comparable. However, I do think it has a role. Um, 
in terms of perhaps in universities, um, in work centres where there are asymptomatic, uh, where nobody has symptoms, whether you could test people coming in every day if your workers, if you felt that was to give an extra layer of protection. But the idea that you would have an antigen test and rock off and think that you definitely weren't COVID positive and then go into a room with other people who think they also, um, their test is true, their antigen test. I mean, some of them are only 65%. And then when you take in operator, it's quite a complex well, how thing How worrying to do. is that to you, given that you seem to be relying a little bit on the potential for them for the return to third level education in September? Yeah, so uh, as Kate has said, it, it has a role uh, and it has a limited role and you have to recognise the, the limitations of it, but but it can contribute, but but it's not the panacea and it's not the, it's not the equivalence of a PCR test, but it will have a role to play, particularly as you know, where big numbers are turning up at venues. OK, thank you very much. That is all we have time for tonight here on The Tonight Show. I'll be back on the radio on Today FM tomorrow afternoon. And then Claire will be back here next Monday night at 10 o'clock. Don't forget, The Tonight Show is also available as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Your next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. Thanks for watching. It's going to be a really good sunny weekend. So get outdoors and enjoy it. Talk to you next week. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.